Hello and welcome. You are listening to the teaching ministry of Coastal Oaks Church in Rockport, Texas. It is our hope that you will be encouraged and that your desire to follow Jesus Christ will be challenged and strengthened as you listen to this podcast. For more information on location, service times, and what to expect on your next visit, go to coastaloakschurch.org. Now grab your Bible and study along with us as you listen. Take your Bible and open to 2 Kings chapter 21. And as you're turning there, let me briefly take a moment to say thank you. Those of you that have expressed your kindness to our family in this uh, Pastor Appreciation Month, we are grateful for that. And uh, my chance to get to, to, to return that back to you is to say thank you to those who serve in the church on our ministry teams and our committees. Um, and if that is you um, on any of those I'm not going to name them all because I'll leave somebody out, then I'll get an email, and well, you know, I don't need that on Monday morning. So I'm just going to include all of you uh, that if you do serve, would you please stand just for a moment so we can say thanks to the Lord for you. Come on, don't be shy. Thank you. Missions, thank you. Personnel, deacons, Sunday school teachers, uh, kids church teachers. I think like a whole mass of them just walked with the choir um, that way. I know all the kids people are out there, so... Um, I don't like calling you volunteers. Uh, I don't really see that in the scripture. God calls us to serve. So that's, that's a little bit different than a volunteer in my book. So thank you for serving well in the church. Uh, first, uh, excuse me, 2 Kings chapter 22. Now, if you have your note page, um, I don't know how you guys are doing because somebody in the first service called me on it. There's a typo. Uh, it's not Second Chronicles chapter 37. I would love to say I planned that and uh, just to try to see if you were watching and paying attention. I didn't plan that. My big finger hit seven instead of four. But you need to be in both places today. Second Kings chapter 22, Second Chronicles chapter 34 because it's the same story and we get um, more detail in 34 than we do in chapter 22 of Kings. But we're talking this morning looking at the reign of King Josiah. All right. If you would stand with me as I read the first two verses of 2 Kings chapter 22. Josiah was eight years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jedidah, and the daughter of Adiah of Bozkath. And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, and walked all the excuse me, and walked in all the way of David his father. And he did not turn aside to the right or to the left. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that you would speak to our hearts this morning as we come to you. That our ears and our hearts would be open to your truth. That the seed of your word would be firmly planted within our hearts which would then lead us to obey for your glory and for the good of the church. Fathers, we often pray, what we do not know, teach us. What we do not have, provide for us. And what we are not yet, make us for your glory and our good. Speak now, O Lord. Your servants are listening. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, church. You may be seated. I want to point you 
first to Josiah to understand that Reformation begins in the heart turned to the Lord. There is a phrase that we often find repeated in these times of the kings of Israel and Judah, and it's a phrase too often repeated, and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Because of Judah's kings, particularly if you go to chapter 21 of 2 Kings, you'll find one by the name of Manasseh. Because of kings like Manasseh, Israel, excuse me, Judah, the southern kingdom, is now on their way to exile. As you look back in chapter 21, you'll find that Manasseh was all in to everything around him, but not to what really mattered, which was Yahweh. Idolatry was his thing. He led Judah into the building of high places, which is where uh, it's a high point um, in, in the territory around, in the, in the land around Jerusalem and other places. They would build a temple there. They would build some kind of house of worship, not to, not to the God of Israel, but to all the other gods around them. In fact, if you'll read in verse 2, verses 1 and 2 of, uh, of chapter 21, you'll read that Manasseh uh, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord according to there we get a little more insight into the despicable practices of the nations whom the Lord had driven out. All right, so not only is Manasseh all in, he is all in to all of the peoples and all of their gods of the people that God had already driven out of Israel. They had been allowed to come back in. It's a slow drift. It's a slow fade over generations of kings that were evil in the sight of the Lord, not doing what God had called them to do, not being who God had called them to be. And so now you get to Manasseh where it's like this volcano of idolatry. It's finally all the pressures built up and it just exploded all over Judah. And God has had it. He is, uh, he is going to send them into exile as a means of purify, purifying them and setting them apart again once the exile is done. But then in chapter 22 comes this little boy named Josiah. He's like a breath of fresh air. In fact, some have called him like a second Moses or a second David. If you were to go back to Deuteronomy in chapter 17 where Moses writes about the king of Israel and who uh, he should be, what he should look like, how he should be, and how he should pursue God, you will find that Josiah of every other king that Israel has had, Josiah really fits that role, that, that description. Uh, and, and there's something that has set him apart from Manasseh, his grandfather, and Amon, his father, before him at the end of chapter 21. He's a kid, for one. He's eight years old, okay? And I got two of those in my house. That's a scary thought. I don't care who you are. Eight-year-old boy ruling the kingdom. But this eight-year-old boy has been set apart. What's different about him? Some will say it's the influence of his mother, is that his mother, we don't get much about her, but his mother directed him into the ways of David, into following the God of Israel. There's something that sets him apart, though, and that, that setting apart, we actually can find over in Chronicles chapter 34, 2 Chronicles. The chronicler gives us a, a different or a little more insight into that, and it says um, that he walked in the ways of David, his father. He did not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. He did what was right in the, side, in the eyes of God. But here's verse 3. In the eighth year of his reign, while he was yet a boy, he began to seek the God of David, his father. And in the twelfth year of his reign, he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem of the high places and show uh, and, and, and carved images and metal images of things that were there. 
You, you just begin to see more of that come out in his life, in his rule, in his reign as the king of Judah. So though, though judgment was coming for Judah, it is delayed. There's justice here in light of, excuse me, there's mercy in light of the justice that is coming from God. It, it's, it's coming through this boy who started at age eight seeking the Lord, having a heart for God, pursuing God, um, all because that's how his mother, it seems, directed him. At the end of his life, we get at the end of chapter 23, verse 25 of 2 Kings, you get this that's said about him. Before him, no king was like him um, who turned to the Lord with all his heart, with all his soul, with all his might. According to the law of Moses, nor did any like him arise after him. Did you catch what, what the description was? He turned to the Lord with all his heart, with all his soul, with all his might. For Israel, for Judah, there was what still is today known as the Shema. It's something that's repeated multiple times every day. It's found in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. <clears throat> now let me go back to that description about Josiah again. Catch on. He turned to the Lord with all his heart, with all his soul, with all his might. That's what's different about Josiah. How early can a child begin to seek the Lord? In the womb. We know that infants, babies inside mama's womb can respond to sound. They can kick when they hear her voice and kick sometimes when they hear voices that they might recognize. Music, they've been, we've, we've known that music has an effect on an infant in the womb. How early? How early is it too early to start reading to your child the word of God? <laughs> Not early enough. As soon as you know, start reading the word of God. At age eight, Josiah began seeking the Lord. And today, if you're not seeking the Lord, hear the word of God, Isaiah 55, verse 6, seek the Lord while he may be found. My friend, today is a day to begin seeking the Lord if you're not already. In Chronicles, it states by age 16, he was already then seeking the Lord even more. By age 20, he's leading the purge of Judah and Jerusalem from all of the high places and the false gods and destroying those idols. The restoration and reformation of Judah at this moment, its people begin with a child who sought the Lord. Did you know that most of the great movements of revival and reformation happened with teenagers? It started with young men and young women who heard the word of God, their hearts were broken and turned back to the Lord. It didn't start with the old stately folks in the church, it started with the young people. That's where we find even still here in Josiah. He, he here, you know, Psalm 34, 4 says, I sought the Lord, he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. When we seek God, we find him. Jesus told us to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, not worry about all the daily affairs of life that pull our affections away. And those things that pull us away will suddenly become idols that we worship and we give all of ourselves to rather than following hard after him and pursuing him with all of our heart, our mind, and our strength. It's amazing to me to see a, a child king as a catalyst for kingdom reformation, even if it's for just a moment. Just that one word, reformation, ought to get us thinking about what that means, to reform. It means it was formed once, broken, and had to be remade, redone, or made over. It's not all that different than what Jesus told Nicodemus. You must be born again. How can I be born again, right? 
I'm an old man. That's exactly what so many of our churches need today. We don't need to reform in structures and policies and bylaws and statements of faith. Our creeds need to be shaped up again or our confessions, whatever we want to call it. We need humility before the Lord and we need hearts that are turned to him, loving him with all of our heart, our mind, and our strength or our might. You'll notice in, uh, uh, the, in verse 2 of the King's passage that he did not turn to the right or to the left. What does that mean? Well, I mean, how does he go anywhere? He's always walking a straight line. Well, it's not talking physically. He's talking about his heart. He did what's right in the eyes of the Lord. He walked in the ways of David, his father. He did not turn to the right or to the left. It means he was devoted to the Lord. It stresses that he was devoted to walking in the pathway that God had laid out before him. So when we transgress, that means we're stepping out of that path. So to turn to the right or to the left means that he's stepping off course from what God had called him to do as king of Judah. And so he's walking and he's staying straight. He's walking in straight paths for his name's sake. That phrase stresses that devotion and what we've already heard of him, that he had committed himself to love God with his heart, his soul, his might. At age 20 in 2 Chronicles 34, it tells us that he, as he had already began to to purge Judah and Jerusalem of those high places, the places of worship, the idols, the metal images. The altars of Baal are being chopped down. The temple is going to re- be rebuilt as he sends out the, the, the treasurers to go gather the offering. It's during that time of repair, though, that we begin to see something different take place. There's a man by the name of Hilkiah. He's a high priest. And he's part of that, that crew, that entourage, that goes out to collect an offering for the rebuilding of the temple. And as he comes back, something is discovered in the temple. He finds the book of the law. That tells you they hadn't, they hadn't been hearing from it. What is this guy a priest of? He had, they hadn't heard from the word of God. In verse 8 it says, And Hilkiah the high priest said to Shaphan the secretary, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan and he read it. Verse 10 reads, And Shaphan the secretary told the king, Hilkiah the priest has given me a book. And Shaphan began to read it before the king. So Josiah is now hearing the word of God. As he returns to give the king this financial report of all that was collected from the people for the rebuilding of the temple, something much more important than the temple treasury was discovered. The treasure of God's word. And amongst all the rubble, there survived the book of the law. Now, the account of 2 Chronicles identifies this as the book of the law of the Lord given through Moses. First five books of the Old Testament are the books of the law. Most likely, it's either a section of, it's probably a section of Deuteronomy where the law was given a second time. But at this point, what we know, that's the word of God, right? They don't have... They don't have all the Psalms and Song of Solomon or Proverbs. They don't have all that stuff captured. It's being written, being composed, but it's not all nice and bound like we have it today. Certainly the New Testament is around, but what they had was the word of God, and that was the law, the book of the law of Moses. And so they began to read the word of God. Friends, the heart that is turned to the Lord is also going to be shaped by his word. You'll find that in Josiah's life. Because what happens next in the story is is quite amazing. The revival that is birthed in Josiah and and his people and his entourage around him, it's all been external at this point. 
taking down the idols and the altars, the high places and all the, the things, the uh, false worship that's been happening and the high, you know, all of this stuff that's going on. But there's something more here. Because what we know and what we understand is that external rituals will not change our heart. Friends, you can come to Sunday, you can come to Life Group, you can do all of those external things, and if you're just checking a box off, if you're saying, okay, now I've done this, so therefore God has to bless me, that's all external stuff. That's not going to change your heart. They're going to serve to reinforce what's, been th- what's in there, but they're not going to transform your heart. I find in Scripture that the triune God, God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and His Word are the power that shape or reshape our hearts in Christ's likeness. Ezekiel chapter 36, verse, 36 uh, verse 26, rather, it says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, a heart that is soft and moldable, tender before me. Psalm 51.10 says, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Pastor Andy, a while ago, uh, when he was praying, uh, said something about um, when, when we have that moment of conviction, it's, uh, it's not an indictment, it's an opportunity, right? It's an invitation. And this is, you hear that in David's heart in Psalm 51, because he's been convicted of sin, it's very present in front of him, and he's broken about it. And you don't hear him say, okay, Lord, I'm coming back to you today, by God, and I'm going to clean myself up, and I'm going to give myself a new heart so I can come back to you. No, you hear David again. He says, create in me. He's talking to the Lord. Create in me. Lord, you create in me a new heart. You create in me a clean heart. You renew the right spirit within me. Psalm 73, verse 26 says, My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. We hear above the the word of God, how how powerful it is. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. God and his word have the power to shape and reshape our hearts to reform us. Look what happens to Josiah in verse 11. When the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his clothes. It's not all that different than David. When Nathan the prophet told him, you are the man, you are the one that has committed this sin. David reacts very similar to to this moment. Isaiah, when he's in the throne room of God and his vision and the holiness of God is surrounding him and he, woe is me I'm a man of unclean lips that reality and here for Josiah it's the tearing of his clothes what does that mean it's a sign of humility it's a sign of brokenness it's a sign of being willing and ready to turn back to the Lord even in this moment Josiah it's been so long since they heard from the word of God he's a little bit unsure of what he's hearing what does this mean because it had been so long And so he sends that same delegation that went out for the offering, he sends them to a prophetess named Hilda. And you'll see her response as you follow along, but primarily I want you to look at verses 19 and 20 because Josiah wants to know, what does this mean for me? And her message to them is, look, it's not going to change much for for Judah. God God has got his plan. This is it. His judgment is coming. But Josiah, for you, even though judgment is coming, Josiah, there is this moment here where God is going to give you a moment of mercy. 
Look at verse 19. Because, she says, because your heart was penitent, repentant, and you humbled yourself before the Lord when you heard how I spoke against this place and against its inhabitants, that they should become a desolation and a curse. You have torn your clothes and wept before me. I also have heard you, declares the Lord. I will gather you to your fathers, and you shall be gathered to your grave in peace. And your eyes shall not see all the disaster that I will bring upon this place. It hasn't changed God's plan for Judah. His judgment's still coming. They've been steeped in idolatry, steeped in injustice, steeped in all kinds of the ways of the world. But for this man, this king, Josiah, God is going to spare him from having to live through and witness the fall of the kingdom. Why? Why is that? Because his heart was broken before the Lord. He didn't pull himself up by the, by the bootstraps and tighten his belt and prepare himself for war and say, I'm a man, I'm going to do it myself. No, he didn't do that at all. He tore his clothes, his kingly robes. He tore them, and he was broken before the Lord. Why? Because he heard that he was guilty. He heard the people of Judah were guilty. What else is there to do but to turn back to the Lord? The key for Josiah in all of this was his response. It's humility. Every king before him, especially Manasseh and Amon, were not humble at all. They had nothing to do with the Lord. But humility is always the key to diffusing a tough situation. In this moment, humility before the Lord, and there's nothing worse or tougher than being confronted with the holiness and righteousness of God and his standard of living that he calls us to and realizing that we have fallen short of that glory and completely missed the mark. What are we to do? Josiah heard, and as he listened to the book, as Shaphan read it aloud, he heard the word of God. He's cut to the heart. And as he's tearing his clothes in humility, expressing lament and grief for himself and Judah, they had sinned something awful in idolatry and all of the injustice. And some of us, though, when we hear the word like that, it was like, that ain't me. Boy, that preacher's judgmental. Always stepping on my toes. That's ugly. I don't want to hear that kind of preaching. I want to go somewhere else. Or we'll sit back and say, I'll commit to do better and be better. Well, that's self-effort. That's not going to get you anywhere. Hear it again. The word of God has grasped his heart. And then it began to shape his reaction to what God was doing. The law of Moses had not been observed for generations. But at least this brief moment before they go to exile, before judgment comes, there is this breath of fresh air that brings the word of God back to the forefront. You're going to see it again when the people come back to Jerusalem and Ezra and Nehemiah. You see the same, a similar event happen when the word of God is brought back to the people. But listen, the heart that is turned to the Lord is going to be shaped by his word. Not only is Josiah influenced, but the people around him are influenced as well. And if you read through chapter 23, that's your homework this week, then you will find all of the reforming acts that he took. Continue to tear down the idols and the, the Asherah and, and the high places, the altars to Baal. He continued through that. But then there's another moment at the beginning of chapter 23 when he, makes, he stands up and he makes the covenant as he's reading the word in verse tw uh, verse two of chapter twenty three, it says the king went up to the house of the Lord, and with him all the men of Judah, and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and the priests and the prophets, all the people, both small and great, everybody's included, 
And he read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant that had been found in the house of the Lord. And the king stood by the pillar and made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all his heart and all his soul to perform the words of this covenant that were written in this book. And all the people joined in the covenant. So he's taken out all the bad stuff, all the idols and all that stuff, and God is leading him to replace that with the word of God. Eventually, Passover is back. Man, it's been generations, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years since they had observed Passover. But we see in chapter 23 that Passover is restored. What is Passover? Passover, quickly, is a remembrance a day of remembrance and, a, and some, it's got some ceremony to it where they walk through the elements of the Passover. And that's when God delivered his people out of Egypt, right? You remember the lamb for each family was, was sacrificed in the home and the blood was painted over the doorpost of each home. And as, as night came, the, God passed, God's presence passed through um, uh, Egypt, through the land of Egypt. And when he saw that doorpost with the lamb's blood that had been sacrificed for that home, he passed over that home. And the Egyptians who did not do that, did not observe that, then they lost the firstborn of their home, including Pharaoh. And out of that, that final plague that came on uh, to Egypt, that's how uh, Pharaoh's heart is hardened and God then delivers his people out of captivity, out of slavery, out of Egypt. That was supposed to be observed every year, but it has been hundreds and hundreds of years until now. Why? Because they got back into the word of God. And at the end of the story, again, about Josiah's life, we get this. There was no king like him before him who turned to the Lord with all his heart, with all his soul, with all his might, according to all the law of Moses, nor did anyone like him uh, arise after him. Let me draw out a couple of application points for us this morning and what this hopefully can, can point us to. First one is this, friend, that we've got to value the word of God. We must value the word of God. God's word was lost in God's temple. That's a big application for much of what our churches hear today and we call preaching or teaching. God's word lost in God's temple. Should not have happened, but when the word of, when the word of God gets lost, in his place, in his dwelling place, when God's word gets lost in God's people, Houston, we have a problem. What do you say about the value of God's word? What is your devotion life, your prayer life, your personal prayer life, your, your study of the word of God, the application of the word of God? What does it speak about the value that you have placed on his word? Is your devotion time but just a, a moment of reading? Check, got that one done. Let's go on about my day. Now because I've read my Bible, God has to bless my day. And close the book up, put it back on our table. His word calls us to hide it in our heart, to treasure it as such, to hide it in there. Psalm 119, the psalmist says, I've stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Friends, there are characteristics about the word of God uh, core values of the Word of God that we, we need to remember. One, that the Word of God is authoritative for the church. It's authoritative for you as a follower of Jesus. What it says applies to your life. It calls you to action. It calls you to obedience and faithfulness. 
It's authoritative. It's, it's needed today more than ever. It's sufficient in all of its ways, in all of its words, in all of its teaching, in all of its truth. It's clear. And we see in Josiah how he humbled himself and he tore his clothes as he heard the truth of God. I mean, it, he believed it when he heard it. Like, and as he's hearing the word of God, he, he's believing that he's, he's hearing the voice of God, not saying, God told me, but rather hearing the word of God. When you open up your Bible, this is God's word. He's speaking. I've quoted Bodhi Bauckham before, and I'll do it again on this one. He says, God told me is no substitute for God's word says. All scripture is breathed out by God. It's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. It guides everything we do in the church, and the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Outside those doors is our good work. When we leave this place, we're entering our mission field. God has called and equipped us to go outside and do good work for his glory and our good. But it starts by loving and valuing the word of God. Jesus himself said to Satan as he's being tempted, man shall not live on bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. It's all captured right here. Now, if you believe that God wrote the Bible, inspiring men to pen these words and protecting them over generations upon generations, why wouldn't we read it more? Why wouldn't we study it and apply it to our life? When we say that we value, we must value the word, it means that we believe it's important. It's worth something. It's useful. We consider it to have great value in our life. But what you do with what you hear when you read really tells you how much you value his word. Isaiah 55, 8 says, for as the rain and snow uh, come down, this is, excuse me, it's not verse 8, it's a little further down, verse 10. As the rain and snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word that goes out from my mouth it shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the very thing for which I sent it. This, not some prophetic word you hear on TV. This, God's word, right here, right now. We hear this, and that means for the church today that as we hold this this word in high esteem and we value what it says, we'll remember in Acts chapter 7, verse uh, Chapter 6, verse 7, it says, The word of God continued to increase. This is right after they select the deacons and, and the apostles are getting back to the ministry of the word and prayer. There, the word of God continued to increase. The number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. A great number of priests uh, became obedient to the faith. Friends, we will be passionate about worship and discipleship, evangelism, all of the things that we are called to as, we are, as much as we are passionately pursuing knowing God in his word. This word, his presence and his word to us drive us. It spurs us on. It stirs us up to love and good works. And we'll grow in Christ's likeness according to how we pursue the truth of God's word. Why was the church growing so rapidly in the book of Acts? Because the word of God, the gospel, was increasing. The disciples were increasing. They were growing in number because they were pursuing Christ. They had a calling upon their life as the disciples, as the early church, to bring all in Christ and to see Christ in all. Friends, we also must be humbled before the word of God. We don't come to this word and say, oh, I know it all and I've got degrees or this or that. And No, we come humbled before the word of God. Josiah tore his clothes 
upon hearing the word. The importance of that moment is reiterated by Huldah the prophetess in 2 Kings twenty two nineteen when she says, because your heart was penitent and you humbled yourself before the Lord when you heard how I spoke against this place and its inhabitants. Because that's where your heart was. Because his heart was there, the outward sign was the tearing of the clothes, but his heart was already there. Because he heard. Tony Murata found uh, very helpful in understanding where Josiah's heart was at this point. First he said, Josiah had a heart that was tender before the Lord. I know, men, that doesn't sound very masculine. God doesn't need you to be masculine before him. He needs you to have a heart that's tender and ready to be shaped. He'll use you. He used little David, didn't he? David wasn't even a man. David was still a boy. Think about that. All the big men of Israel were shaking in their boots, and here comes the little boy. I fight for the Lord. He is on my side. And he struck that mighty giant down. We've got to have a tender heart before the Lord, a heart that responds to the word. Listen to what James writes. Receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your soul. Second, he said his heart was open to learn. And he sent people to find out what it meant. If you don't understand something, go find somebody who might, who or who does. Seek that understanding. Seek that truth. And you come to the word of God, you got to have that teachable heart. And then he said, third, his heart was blessed. That God honored him in that moment with relief from the impending judgment of exile. You will not see the downfall of Judah. He's going to spare him from that. Friends, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. Man, when you open the word and you hear, you hear the sweet words of God, you find grace and mercy, but you also find his holiness, his righteousness. He find, you find there what his plan is for your life and how he's directing you into Christ-likeness. What, what is more blessed than that? His presence, his glory. I mean, we could go on and on. We find it here. Psalm 119 says, Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord, who walk according to his word. Third, it calls us to obey. We must obey the word of God. The goal of hearing and receiving the word then is obedience. And you'll see that followed through in chapter 23 in Josiah's life. In his reign as king, he follows through with all the reformation that had been ordained. Getting rid of the idols, getting rid of the, the altars to Baal, reestablishing Passover, these great reforms that brought about the presence of God in his life and brought about, at least for a, a little while longer, people who were pursuing God in the nation, the kingdom of Judah. We've got to obey the word of God. James tells us again in verse 22 of chapter 1, be doers of the word, not hearers only, so deceiving yourselves. You find that Josiah heard, he sought understanding, and then he took action. If you're only obeying God to get something in return, you're living in the realm of what we call the prosperity gospel. I'll obey so I get what I want. Friends, obedience to the word for self-centered reasons is not obedience, it's self-centeredness, it's selfishness. Why then do we obey? Jesus told us, if you love me, you will keep my commands. As we look forward to our days as the church until Christ returns, what is our call in the New Testament? I believe we find that in Colossians chapter 3, verse 16. 
where Paul writes to the church, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with thanksgiving in your hearts to God. The word of Christ is the word about Christ. Friends, this is not a sermon to say, be more like Josiah. Friends, Josiah died, he's still dead. What Josiah does, though, is point us to our greater need, to the King of Kings, to the word of Christ, to the gospel, the good news that in King Jesus, the problem of sin and rebellion and the things against God have been paid for. We're not going to be able to solve all of our world's problems and certainly solve problems in the church, but only Christ Jesus can and will do that. So we take the call of the word of God this morning to let the word of Christ dwell in us. Just as the word of the law of God through Moses dwelt in Josiah, it changed his life. The word of Christ and the word about Christ, the gospel, his word today changes our lives when we find Christ. We trust him as Savior and Lord of our life. Then and only then will we be people formed by Christ, that our hearts would be turned back to the Lord, and that we would commit to be people shaped by the word, not the world. That we would commit this morning that, that we were and are a part of the problem in our sin, yet in Christ we are transformed in such a way to take the gospel now to the world. So that people will know that it is Christ and Christ alone who brings the change that changes everything. Let's pray.